Please take your Bibles then and turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. Last time we were together in Ezekiel, we, we studied that very, we might say confusing, tricky perhaps, passage, Ezekiel chapter 1, the vision, as verse 28 tells us, of the glory of the Lord. We were careful to make sure that we didn't lose out on exactly what Ezekiel said he was seeing because of what he was describing, the appearance and the description, the likeness, appearance and likeness were those two words he used. You recall that what he saw was a flaming sphere, a flaming fire. Within that flaming fire was what we will find out in, uh, later in the book of Ezekiel to be the cherubim. And these were creatures of tremendous brightness and glory. And they had four faces and four wings. And we'll find out from later on in Ezekiel they had eyes all around them. And then with these cherubim there were the wheels and the wheels. And those wheels had eyes all around them. And we recognized that this vision was to display for us, and particularly at the time for Ezekiel, God's omnipresence, God's omniscience, that He was everywhere, that He saw everything, and then it panned above the firmament to the throne, and the likeness of a man on the throne, but the glory was so bright around Him, Ezekiel could not see Him. A rainbow overshadowed the throne, and we recognize Ezekiel sees the sovereign, mighty God with faithfulness as his banner around the throne. And of course we saw from verse 28 that Ezekiel says what I'm looking at and what I'm attempting to describe to you, reader, is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's what he was seeing, the glory of the Lord. And he was trying to find some human way to describe something so magnificent as the manifest glory of God. And then as we saw at the end of this, that chapter, in verse 28, the last part, it says, And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. And so it leads into the reality that Ezekiel was humbled by this, and he listened to a voice, and that voice is what we're going to learn of in Ezekiel chapter 2. You know, doing that which is right is not always the same and is often not the same as um, doing that which is popular. Doing that which people want or like. Quite often, doing what is right means doing that which is not popular. From Ezekiel chapter 2 today, we're going to look at the call that will be placed upon Ezekiel's life as a prophet, as what he will describe as a watchman. He's going to be called to do something for God. And as we'll see in the call itself, he's going to be called to be unpopular. He's going to be called to take an unpopular message to a people that are not interested in hearing it. And immediately, perhaps as you hear that, you might connect the dots to Christians today who are called to take a very unpopular message to a group of people that don't want to hear it. 
And so we're going to connect some dots today. We're going to make some links. Some links between what God has called Ezekiel to do, as we'll understand and learn about throughout the book of Ezekiel, and what God has called us to do as believers in Jesus Christ in this church age. Three elements this evening of Ezekiel's call that apply to every born-again believer as well. So three elements of what we will see to be Ezekiel's call that will apply to you and to me as we leave these doors this evening and we go out into that world and we speak with people and we share the gospel and we live a life that is sanctified before God. Three elements that that apply to Ezekiel in his day according to God's word and will apply to us as well. Ezekiel chapter 2. We'll look at uh, the the first eight verses today. We'll pick up with verse 9 next week. And in verses 1 through 5, we see this first element. It's a call to tell. Ezekiel was called to tell. You and I as well are called to tell. We mentioned when we were together last time in Ezekiel chapter 1, that when a person is confronted with the reality of who God is, and they see themselves in light of who God is, their response will be one of humility and repentance before God. We recall as Ezekiel saw the glory of God, he fell upon his face before this splendor. But as we step into Ezekiel 2, we see that the prophet does not remain on his face. Look at me in the beginning of verse 1. And he, that's that voice that spake from chapter 1, he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me, and set me upon my feet, that I heard him that spake unto me. The voice that Ezekiel heard as he fell upon his face spoke directly to him in these verses. This voice commanded him, first of all, to stand upon his feet. At the same time, Verse 2 tells us that while the Spirit was, while the voice was telling him, stand upon your feet, the Spirit entered into him and helped him or got him on his feet. Now, I do not believe what we are seeing here is what some might say to be a spirit consciousness that entered into him. It was not a mystical experience necessarily that, that was going on here. Uh, I believe Ezekiel is describing the reality that he had fallen on the ground like a dead man. He had fallen on the ground in abject humility before God, and as the voice spoke, the Spirit of God gave him the power that he needed to get back on his feet. A power which, when confronted with the majesty of God which he was seeing, he may not very well have had in and of himself. The majesty of God, the glory of God was so powerful that it took the enablement of the Spirit of God for him to even have strength to stand. Now the call itself is found in verses 3 and 4. Look at them with me. And he, this voice, said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers had transgressed against me even unto this very day, for they are impudent children that were literally hard-faced. They are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. Right there at the very end of chapter 4, we, uh, verse 4, we see what, what he's commanded to tell. Thus saith the Lord God. But we notice first of all, as we step into these two verses, the phrase, Son of Man. In verse 2, we see the, the words, Son of Man. And we saw it in verse 1 as well. Son of Man, twice thus far in the book. 
Before the end of the book, we will have seen this phrase come up 94 separate times. 94 separate times, Ezekiel will be referenced as the Son of Man. He is one of only three specific men, specific individuals in the Scriptures that receive this title. The prophet Daniel is given this title in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, once. Ezekiel is given this title these 94 times throughout the book of Ezekiel. And then there's one other man that receives this title. It's in the New Testament. Jesus Christ receives this title. Jesus Christ often refers to himself as the Son of Man. Other than him referring to himself, only Daniel once and Ezekiel in this prophecy receive the title Son of Man. So the question we ask is, is there any significance to this title? Is there any significance or is this just happenstance that these two men were called the Son of Man and no one else? Well, in general, we'll see in just a little bit as we look at some other places where this term is used in Scripture, it's used to emphasize hereditary humanity of a person. That that person has a human heredity, that he is a man, that he is a descendant of man, that he comes from a, a lineage of men. It's meant to emphasize heredity and hereditary humanity. But it seems as though the term is often used specifically, not simply as a description of mankind's heredity or humanity, but also a term as a representative of mankind. That, we, that this person is not simply a human, but he is a representative of humans. Here's some other times where this phrase is used in the scriptures. Bildad asked Job in Job 25 verses 4 through 6 this. He said, how, can, how then can a man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm, and the son of man, which is a worm. David used this term in Psalm 8, verse 4. He said, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? The Lord said to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 51, 12, I, even I am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou shouldst be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? And so we see the reality of humanity the, the, the emphasis upon the fact that we are just human. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? What is the human race, the humankind? But it also seems to be a term of representative kind. That this person, this son of man, whoever he might be, is a representative for the human race. In Daniel chapter 8, we see the prophet had just seen a vision of the days ahead, from the invasion of Persia to the restoration of the temple in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. It was his privilege to be a representative of this promise to the people, and he's called Son of Man. In Ezekiel, the prophet is called a watchman, a chosen man to sound the warning before the people regarding the days ahead of that which is from the seed of a woman, that which is of mankind, Ezekiel is the man, the representative, the chosen man. In the New Testament, Jesus is the Word of God incarnate, coming in the flesh to deliver God's message of repentance and redemption to the world. He is 
certainly a man, but he is that man, the chosen man, the son of man. And so we, we, we recognize the hereditary aspect, the humanity aspect, also possibly a representative aspect here. And so Ezekiel carries this title. And the beginning of that message, the message he's called to deliver, is a call to go and tell. A call to go and tell. Now to whom was Ezekiel sent? We see this in verse 3. He was sent to the children of Israel, to his own people, to his own tongue, to his own culture. But you know, just because he was sent into familiar territory, this does not mean that his job would be easy. Here in Buffalo, Minnesota, Legacy Baptist Church has been sent to its own people. We are sent to our own culture, to our own tongue. We speak English in this church. We uh, are ministering to people that are very similar to us in culture. I've come cross-culturally a little bit, and I'm having to learn the culture uh, a little bit based upon growing up in Colorado and living in Florida for so many years and now being up here in Minnesota. But... For the most part, as a whole, in general, we have been sent to our own people. But you know, just because we've been sent to our own people, just because we are a group call of called out believers that are called to go to our own Jerusalem, as you were, Buffalo, Minnesota, that does not mean our job is going to be easy. It does not mean that we're going to be able to just find great physical success right off the bat. God's description of the nation of Israel here in verse 3 is excessively negative. He calls them rebellious. He calls them impudent. I said that that means hard-faced or shameless. That's what the word impudent means, is shameless. They are stiff-hearted. They, are, they stand firm against the conviction of God, against the message of God. Their heart is hardened against it. And Ezekiel's responsibility in verse 4 was to say to them, Thus saith the Lord God. Now before we move on, let me quickly mention what we see here with the, the names of the Lord God. The King James Version, as we've learned of many times in the past, uh, uses a very consistent nomenclature when it references the names of God in order that we can know the name behind it. And typically we understand that when we see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in our King James Bible, it is, it is the word Jehovah behind it. The word Jehovah, oftentimes in uh, evangelical circles today, they'll use the, the, the term Yahweh. Here, we see capital G, capital O, capital D, God in all capitals. Well, let me broaden the perspective of what the King James translators are doing here. Anytime the name of God is in all caps, whether it's God or Lord, it is Jehovah. The word behind it is Jehovah. Now, the reason why they used God here, capital G, capital O, capital D, instead of doing capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, is because there's another word in the Hebrew that means Lord that's used just prior to Jehovah. And so if they were to have kept their capital L-O-R-D, then it would have said, the Lord, Lord. And they didn't do that, so they used the name God, but they capitalized it. And so literally, we, we see the name Lord Adonai, and then we see God in all caps, Jehovah, Lord God, or Lord 
Jehovah. And that's what's happening there. If you are curious as to what that G-O-D in caps means in the King James, it is Lord Jehovah. It's the same Jehovah that we would see when we see capital L-O-R-D in all caps. Okay, moving on to verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. And they, God's telling Ezekiel, he's been commanded to say, Thus saith the Lord God. God says, And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. Notice that Ezekiel's call was not directed toward getting people to listen, convincing them, or getting them to obey. His call was to let them hear the message. God says, you are called to say, thus saith the Lord. Whether they hear you, or whether they don't hear you. Whether they listen, or whether they don't listen. Whether they obey, or whether they don't obey. Whether they repent, or whether they don't repent. Your message, your call is the same. It's to say, thus saith the Lord. And here's the thing, here's the result. God says, regardless of whether they listen or not, they're going to know that there was a prophet among them. They're going to know that God is speaking to them. They're going to know that they've heard the message. Ezekiel's success in his ministry was not based upon how people responded to his message, but rather based upon his obedience to deliver the message to the nation. And as a believer in the room this evening, your responsibility is very similar to Ezekiel's. We just finished our series in John in the evening service. Jesus Christ told his disciples in John 20, 21, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. When we consider this passage, when we understand the many times where the Scriptures tell us to go, even as we think of Sunday school this morning, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission that says, Go ye into all the world. The command to go and to make disciples. As we consider these things, we recognize that we are, were sent, we are sent to continue the work that Jesus Christ left upon this earth. We are the body whose head is Christ. Jesus ministered on this earth, and as he ministered, he ministered to a nation. Some believed his message, most did not. Jesus Christ's ministry was not found successful because of how many came to believe. His ministry was successful because he did his Father's will. He delivered the message and he gave his life on the cross for mankind. I don't believe anyone in this room would say Jesus Christ's ministry was unsuccessful. Certainly he found success because he came to do his Father's will and he did it. I don't believe anyone in this room would say that the apostles were unsuccessful because they were often thrown out of cities and beaten and bruised and mocked and scorned and eventually killed for the name of Christ. So too, the success of our ministry is not that we would find great numbers of people to buy into our message, to agree with what we have to say, but the success of our ministry and our calling as believers upon this earth is that we would tell and that people would hear, and that as people walk along their day and they interact with us, they would not leave without knowing that, that the Word of God is true. It doesn't mean that they're going to accept it, but they will know that God's Word has been among them. They will recognize God's Word.
whether they hear or whether they forbear, we are called to go. This brings about a natural response in the heart of man, though, doesn't it? Particularly, I think, in our culture. Our culture that for so many years has been so friendly to Christianity. For so many years, Christian culture has not needed to do a whole lot to get people to come to church and to listen. I'm reading a book on revival right now, and I was reading uh, about the mid-1800s and the late-1800s and the early-1900s in the United States. And you know, there were a lot of problems, social problems, civil problems in those times. Certainly, we think about it and we say, oh, how good things were back then for the church. But you know, they had a lot of issues as well. But for all that, what's so interesting is a man could plan a revival service and the city would give him the biggest place and people would come. Whether they believed or not, whether they agreed or not, people would come. One of George Whitfield's greatest advocates was a man named Benjamin Franklin. Now, Benjamin Franklin was not a, by his own profession, he did not believe in God. He was not a believer. He said many times in his life that he had no interest in the God of the Bible, that he did not believe Jesus Christ was Savior. However, for all of that, Benjamin Franklin loved to go listen to George Whitfield preach. And he would travel for miles to hear George Whitfield preach. And he would go out of his way to get George Whitfield's sermons transcribed. And yet he was a man that wasn't even interested in the God of the Bible. Interesting. It was a different time. We don't live in that time anymore, do we? We don't live in a time where people just say, oh, it's Sunday. Maybe we should go see what's happening at church this week. Maybe I should just go through those doors and listen to the sermon. Oh, there's a revival coming through town. Let's take our kids and go. Doesn't happen anymore. We live in a different time. And you know, the culture that we live in, when blended with the calling that we have upon our lives, can create something in our hearts. That something is fear can create a fear, see, because we knock on a door and we know before anyone's answered that door that the person that I'm, whose door I'm knocking on is most likely, 95% sure, not going to want me standing at their door. People don't like it anymore when you knock on their door. They're not interested in what you have to say. A lot of times they don't even come to the door. The television's on, you see a person sitting on the couch, you knock on the door, they don't move. They don't, they're not interested in what you have to say. A lot of times when I hear the doorbell ring, I roll my eyes and say, oh, who's that this time? Who am I going to have to speak to? Even I have that problem. Call on the phone. People don't like to talk on the phone anymore. If they, if they want to communicate with you, well, text them, right? Text them. Shoot me a text. I'll get back to you when, on my time. Send me a Facebook message, something like that. There's a, there's a natural fear because we know that people aren't going to necessarily want to hear what we have to say talking with your neighbor. It's been a good conversation. A little bit of small talk, it's been great. And you know, hey, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to breach that spiritual topic. But your heart says, no, don't do it. You've got such a good relationship going here. Don't alienate your neighbor. See, there's a, a fear that comes with the culture that we live in. A fear to tell. But you know, we're not just called to go and tell. Like Ezekiel, we'll see in just a moment, we are also called 
to be fearless. Look with me in verses 6 and 7. First, a call to tell. Second, this evening, a call to be fearless. And thou, son of man, verse 6, be not afraid of them. Neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell amongst scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And, though, and thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear, whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. Do you know that fear that these verses are speaking about? The fear of feeling like you're going to strain your family relations. The fear of people thinking that you're just plain annoying. The fear of being rejected, hearing those words, get out of my face, I don't want to hear what you have to say. What happens when you speak and no one wants to listen? Will they ignore you? Will they scorn you? Will you become their enemy? You don't want your neighbors to run and hide when you come home or when you come around. You don't want your family to moan when they hear that you've been invited to the family reunion. You don't want to see annoyed faces of people when you confront them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't want to see when you hand them that tract, them walk away, tearing up that tract and tossing it on the ground. You don't want to see that. You don't want to feel that. You don't want to be put in that situation. People don't want to hear about religion. They don't want to hear about the consequences of sin. They just want to keep it to themselves and they want you to keep it to yourself. And this fear is very real. And it's very strong. Ezekiel chapter 2 is meant to give us perspective about Ezekiel's ministry and about our ministry as well. See, it's about perspective. Pleasing God or pleasing man. Making people happy or rescuing people's souls. Ezekiel was, God said, right out, straight out, Ezekiel, I'm sending you to a rebellious house, to an impudent people, to stiff-hearted people. They're going to hear you, and they're not going to like what you have to say, and a lot of them are not going to listen. But, he says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words, though their words will be like thorns and briars to you. Have you felt that? Knock on that door and oh, the things that come out of people's mouths, they just prick you. They hurt. It makes you not want to go to the next door. It makes you want to say, okay, we're done for the night. It doesn't feel good. Mr. Trey has given the testimony to me before that he's knocked on a door and said, yeah, you know what you're feeling on your end of the door. Imagine what we're feeling on our end of the door. See, people don't understand that, that it's not necessarily as, as pleasant for us on that side of the door either to not know what's going to come at us. And I use the door knocking as an example. Certainly you can plug in other examples as well. But notice he doesn't just say, be not afraid of their words. But he also says, um, in verse 6, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks. Sometimes if looks could kill, right? When you tell somebody about the gospel or even sometimes <laughs> I'm on an uh, advisory board for the school district here in Buffalo, Hanover Montrose School Board and every year at the beginning of the, of the school year I get to introduce myself and oftentimes every, every time we meet once a month I get to introduce myself for those that weren't there and I say my name is Jamin Wickler I'm the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church here in Buffalo. Well, for the most part, people are very kind and very gracious about that. But there's always those few, 
understanding education system as it is, who have that look on their face. Oh, we have a pastor in here with us. What is he doing in here? Not interested in what that guy has to say. Don't even know why he's here. That look that you get when people find out you're a Christian or find out that you're a believer. He says, don't be afraid of their words. Don't be dismayed at their looks. Though they'd be a rebellious house. You know, it's strange that something that we might consider as petty as the thoughts of others would hinder us from telling about salvation, isn't it? Would such a thing hinder us in most circumstances? The illustration has been given about the man who's about to be, who's walking across the road, and he can't hear, and he's not watching, and there's a bus coming. And that bus is bearing down on him, and that bus can't stop, and that man doesn't see it. And the question is asked, would you ever just stand there and watch that man get hit because you're afraid that he might be angry with you if you knocked him down or pushed him out of the way? Well, no, you wouldn't. See, because it's his life. It's his life that's at stake. So you would run in front and you would warn him and you would yell and you would push him out of the way if you could in order to save him from that bus. And there are millions, billions of people lost and dying and going to hell on the road, on the path, and we walk by them every day. And the question is, do we care enough to warn them and to, every once in a while, if we can, pull one of them out of the fire? Or are we just going to watch them as that bus comes careening towards them? I've always been amazed. I run with some political circles. I keep up with them more than I interact with them. There's some people, some political activists in Buffalo that I know and I keep uh, in communication with, and I'm, I'm just absolutely amazed at the vigor and the zeal of some of these political activists. You've seen them before parades, right? Handing out flyers, doing everything they can to disseminate their information, going door to door for hours upon hours upon hours, every weekend, spending their entire weekend passing out flyers, engaging people, talking with people. And I often sit there and I say, if only I had that zeal for my God that they have for their political candidate. If only I had enough zeal to be out there passing out information. You know, those people, they know that they're going to get the same things. They're going to go to, to the door of, of the person of the, the other political party, if it's a Republican. They're going to go to the door of how many Democrats and knock on that door and say, hey, I'm, I'm here representing so-and-so the Republican and they're going to get doors slammed in their face and they're going to get yelled at and they're going to get the briars and they're going to get the looks and they're going to get it all too. But you know what? Their cause is more important to them than the persecution they're going to take for being out there going door to door or for passing out flyers at a parade. They can do it. Why can't we do it? We serve the King of Kings with a message of salvation from eternity in hell. We don't just have a solution to the curse of sin and death. We have the only, the exclusive solution. People are on a very short road to a very long judgment. And we pass by them every day without telling them the solution. Now, are they going to hear? Are they going to believe? Don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. 
not our job to get them to believe. It's our job to tell. And it really comes down to faith, doesn't it? Do we believe enough in that loving God and that literal hell to recognize that people are literally on their way to eternal judgment? Is it real? Will it happen? Will it? It will. Won't it? Our family and our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones will die and go to hell for eternity. Eternity. It's a long time. Do we believe it will happen? Call to tell. Verses 1-5. through five. A call to be fearless. God said, Ezekiel, be fearless. Be fearless. Tell them thus saith the Lord. Third and finally, a call in verse 8 to be distinct. He's called not just to tell, not just to be fearless, but to be distinct. See, the gospel isn't just what we say, is it? It's also what we do. It's about how we live. Look at verse 8. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. Ezekiel is warned in verse 8 that if he is going to preach against these people and their sin, then he needs to be sure that he is not taking part in their sin. Rather than being filled with the sin of the people, he was expected to be filled with the Word of God. He's about to eat a book. We'll see this, we, we see this in Ezekiel, we see this in Revelation, the idea of eating a book, and it's a symbolic representation of Ezekiel consuming the Word of God. So rather than being filled with the works of the flesh, and rather than being filled with his own priorities and his own desires, he is called upon to be filled with the Word of God. Now we'll explore that more next time and exactly what the implications are of what God is asking Ezekiel to do. But let me just say this as we close this evening. Hypocrisy is one of the greatest enemies of the gospel. Hypocrisy, defined as doing, saying one thing but doing another, but doing the opposite, is one of the greatest enemies of the gospel. We preach salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This salvation, we tell people, will make you a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things become new. This salvation gives a man an enablement, a power over his flesh and his sin in a way that he could never otherwise have. He is no longer a captive to his sin, but he is freed from the sin and through grace and the power of God through the fruit of the Spirit in his life he can please God and he can live a life that is different. It is not just salvation from the penalty of sin. It is liberation from the power of sin in their lives. What a message. What a tremendous message. But let me ask you this. What happens to that message if the messenger is mired in sin? If the messenger is himself stuck in sin? In this 
age, at least in the Western world, the church has already, by and large, lost its testimony. You can no longer see a good pers- uh, be seen as a good person simply because you claim Christianity. The name Christian has been so abused that it's almost meaningless in our culture. Murderers proudly call themselves Christians. Liars proudly call themselves Christians. People see no contradiction between a person who calls himself a Christian homosexual or a Christian rock artist. But then those people read the Bible and they realize that these so-called Christians aren't quite doing what the Bible tells them to do. I remember I came across a young lady when my friend and I were out witnessing in Colorado on one of my vacations this past May. He and I went out to a park and just sat there and handed out bottles of water and engaged people with the gospel during the day. And as we were doing so, I came across one young lady. I told you about her. I don't remember her name off the top of my head. Uh, There were a few that I talked to that day. Uh, I don't remember exactly which one it was. But she had grown up in a Catholic family. And the thing that she kept coming back to as we were witnessing to her is, well, you know, none of you Christians actually live by your book anyway. She said, my my parents are Christians and they've lived their entire lives and I know what the Bible says and they've never done what the Bible says. They've never lived by it anyway. So what's the point? Hypocrisy drove that young lady away from the truth of God's Word. Now, it was a Catholic family, so it's questionable as to how much truth was there to begin with anyway. But what I'm saying here, and what we understand, is that if we are living in open sin and proclaiming the Word of God to be truth, then people will notice. And people will not want what we're offering. If we lie, when the Bible says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. If we pirate movies and video games and music off the internet and then tell people the Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. If we look at pornography and then tell people the Bible says, Thou shalt not covet. The world looks at us and says, You're no different than anyone else except I'm at least being consistent. You're being a hypocrite. Until... They see a Christian who is living the gospel both in word and in deed. What we might call a real Christian with a true and vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ and they realize that there is indeed something different about the Christian who not only reads the book but believes the book and lives the book. And it is at these times that the Holy Spirit has the ability through that testimony to confront these men and women about their sin and to make it real to them and to show them their need of salvation. I remember when I was younger, I was probably 15 at the time and I was over at my friend's house. He and his cousin were there. He was one of my best friends when we had moved to our new house. I moved there about the age of 12. And we were in his house in the basement on a Friday night. We were all sleeping over. It was him and his cousin and myself. And we got into a talk about the Word of God and, and of the world and the realities of sin and of judgment. And, and I could see the conviction on their faces. They knew that they were unsaved. They knew that they needed to be saved. They knew that the Word of God was true. It was just... Uh, it, it's, I don't, if, if you've ever led someone to the Lord, you, you can tell. 
You can tell when it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon them. It's written on their face. It's in their demeanor. I didn't even have a Bible with me. I, was just, I wasn't even quoting verses verbatim. I was just telling them what the Bible said. And the, the conviction was so heavy. And, and as I was giving the gospel, one of the things I had to do was to look at them and say, you know, I'm telling you these things. And I know I haven't been the best example of them. But please understand when I say, even though I haven't always lived it among you. See, because these are my friends. And we hung out a lot together. And they knew me. And I wasn't always the best example of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they knew that. But I was able to tell them, yeah, I may not have been the best example of this. And I apologize for that. But this is the gospel. And they both got saved that night. Praise God. But it was that night that really impressed upon me how things could have been very different because my testimony was not what it ought to have been among them. Because I was living one way and when I finally had a chance to give them the gospel, which was not the first time, this had been years that I had been friends with these guys, and when I finally had a chance and the Holy Spirit was convicting their hearts, I was so terrified that my life, my life example would hold them back from accepting Christ. Let it never, let us never have that fear that our example might hold someone back from the gospel of Jesus Christ. God tells Ezekiel in verse 8, even if there have been a thousand false prophets saying they represent God but living like the world, you are not going to be one of those false prophets. You will represent me with your mouth and your actions in order that your actions will validate your message. People will hear the gospel out of your mouth and will know it's true because your life confirms the difference. And whether they accept it or not, they will know because you have lived your life among them. And so it is imperative that the way we live our lives substantiates the message that we preach. And let me emphasize the order. Let me emphasize the order here. Some will tell you that they are content simply to live out a good example. Now, this is not the call upon Ezekiel's life, and this is not the exclusive call upon our lives. Our call is not just to demonstrate. Our call is to tell. Our lives are not meant to be the exclusive evidence of our message. The Scriptures don't say, how shall they hear without you going among people and living a good life? The Scriptures say, how shall they hear without a preacher? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by living a good life? No. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. People need to hear the Word of God. They need to hear it, not just see it. Our lives are not meant to be the exclusive evidence of our message. Our lives are meant to validate our message. Our lives are lived in a certain way so that when we finally have that chance to proclaim the gospel to someone, they are thinking through it and they are reasoning through it and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is upon them and they know it's true because they've seen it in your life. 
Because they've seen that your children are different. Because they've seen that you live differently. Because they've seen what it has meant, what the, the demeanor, the, the way it's written on your face. Because they've seen how you've gone from darkness to light. Because they've seen your entire life turn around. And it is that testimony that validates in the hearts of, God, uh, of, of people God's message. Now, as we close, I remind you of where Ezekiel began. Remember, God did not throw Ezekiel into his task immediately, nor did he send him alone. God has already shown himself to Ezekiel. Ezekiel has already submitted himself to, the, to God's will. And it was the Spirit of God which entered into Ezekiel that got him on his feet so he could hear the calling of God upon his life and ministry. So too, you and I do not go alone. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear is not given to us by God. It is given to us by the enemy, by the deceiver. But you know, we are not alone in our quest. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us. And God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so, if we get to know that God, if we search the Scriptures, if we see for ourselves who we are in light of who He is, if we humble ourselves before Him, I think we will find the necessity of the message far outweighs the fears that would seek to overcome our zeal. Now, this message is given on the week that we have chosen due to cold weather and light to cease our door knocking ministry for the winter. We'll pick up again in the spring. But as I mentioned this morning, let's not allow this to be the end of our ministry, our evangelization, simply because it's the end of our organized time together on Thursday nights. May I encourage you, when you see those opportunities, take them. Tell people. My wife and I last year at Christmas, we walked around our neighborhood with little goodie bags, had a couple packets of hot cocoa, a few candy canes in it, and a gospel tract. And it said, uh, had a, a nice little message, um, and then from the Wicklers. I don't quite remember what the message said. But we had the opportunity to get a gospel tract into 50 homes on Christmas Day. Just walked around and, handed, and put those on the doorstep. And, you know, I don't know if any of that bore fruit. Nobody has told me anything about it except for our next-door neighbor who thanked us for it, and they're Catholic, so I was very thankful for that. They're, they're not believers. But there's little opportunities that you may find to give the gospel will at least be seeds planted. And nothing can bear fruit if the seeds aren't planted. Let's pray.